The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. If anger wins elections, we may have a winner. This is Thursday, October 11th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links from my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. 10 years, maybe 12. That's how much time we have to make the changes needed before we run out of options to avoid worldwide catastrophes caused by global warming, of which Hurricane Michael is a symptom, a preview of our planet's future. Michael is one of the most powerful storms to ever hit the U.S. mainland and the most powerful ever to hit the Gulf Coast, making landfall as a nearly Category 5 with massive devastation covering 200 miles. And now scientists say the goals set in the Paris Climate Accord are not tough enough to avoid these worldwide catastrophes. U.N. scientists now say that more than a degree and a half of temperature rise would drastically alter the planet, killing all of the coral reefs. The Paris Accord had set the bar at 2 degrees. At the rate we're spewing CO2 into the air, we're headed for over 2.5 degrees. Already wildfires have gotten worse and so have the storms, sometimes with record or unprecedented flooding and record droughts, and a lot more big fires. Crops die, causing poverty and starvation, with food and water supplies affected, those shortages can lead to migration and war. Our options for stopping this trend will vanish in 10 years or so, according to the United Nations scientists who gathered this week in South Korea and agonized over how to break the news to the public, some of them hugging and in tears. They say we desperately need big changes in energy production and transportation to avert global disaster. They mean drastically cutting the use of fossil fuels and a drastic increase in cleaner energy sources. And these UN scientists say the best way to dramatically turn things around with any sense of urgency is to quickly impose a uniform carbon tax in every carbon-generating country. The United States is now the world's second biggest producer of carbon dioxide, but is, under its current president, rolling back pollution goals and refusing to take part in a worldwide climate agreement. The Obama administration was shooting for a carbon tax of $50 per ton. The Trump administration lowered that to 7 and has said nothing about this warning from the UN scientists. The fossil fuel industry and its political activists, the Koch brothers, remain focused on campaigning against political candidates who favor a carbon tax. And it's not just the U.S. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who ran on a platform that put climate as a top priority, is now on the defensive as he fails to persuade the provinces to agree to a carbon tax that was key to his goals. Emissions are still growing in China, and they're expected to keep increasing for another decade. Russia still hasn't signed on, and Brazil has gone from producing oxygen with its rainforests to producing methane from the farmland that has replaced those forests. The White House is silent on the subject. In the meantime, the next two months are crucial. In December, experts and officials from around the world will gather in Poland to continue negotiating a faster response to this threat that's more imminent than it has appeared until now. Not since the Civil War has this nation gone into an election this divided. Not since the Civil War have two huge parts of America been so many miles apart on both policy and principles. Not since then have the stakes been this high. But will people vote? Despite the enthusiasm you're hearing about history and current polling, shows that, as usual, more than half of us will not vote next month. To the delight of Republicans and the dismay of Democrats, only one in four of the 18 to 29 age group are committed to voting on November 6th. One in four. Lately, just over half of the 30 to 49-year-olds turn out. But more than two-thirds of the 50 to 65-year-olds turn out. 65 and over, 82%. And that you can explain to your friends under the age of 30, is why our most esteemed lawmakers look and think like their grandparents. It was targeted young voters who put Obama over the top in Florida, Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. It would take those same young voters to make the difference in the election that's less than a month away, especially in the Senate races. 
Maybe we could play them the lead story about the planet. Still, not since the Civil War has this nation been so divided. Conservatives versus liberals, cities versus the heartland, women versus men. The tone was already bitterly partisan before the Brett Kavanaugh fight. It is more so now. Both sides pulled more tightly into their corners as Republicans gave a lifetime job to someone Americans did not want in that job. A crucial midterm election is just over three weeks away, and we're hearing that both sides are now energized, not just Democrats. Democrats are still expected to win the House, but their chances in the Senate, we've been told, had returned to even at best. Without control of both houses of Congress, House Democrats could obstruct and investigate all things Trump, but they'd be unable to pass legislation to undo the damage they believe he's done. Likewise, the agendas of the White House and the Republican Senate would be disabled by maximum partisan gridlock. Still, a lot can happen in these final three and a half weeks, including a fading of that Republican enthusiasm, if it exists. Trump voters are happy. They got their Supreme Court majority. They're angry about the treatment of Kavanaugh, sure, but will that last throughout the month? Democratic enthusiasm seems less likely to fade, mostly thanks to angry and determined women voters and the momentum the resistance had already amassed. And now 63% of all women plan to vote Democratic. Still, Trump is out on the campaign trail trying to fire up his base against the left-wing mob of angry Democrats that he blames for wrecking Brett Kavanaugh's life. Only to days later, hear his supporters shout, lock her up, while he was talking about veteran Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. Speaking of angry mobs. And he's going to keep that up for the rest of the month. Because a Supreme Court fight includes hot-button issues like abortion, it energizes voters on both sides. If this red wave of outrage we're hearing about is real, Senate seats in the red states of Texas and Tennessee would be back in play, and Democrats in Montana, Missouri, and Indiana would have to fight harder to keep their seats. North Dakota Democrat Heidi Heitkamp would appear to be toast. As things stand today, this year's midterms are about Brett Kavanaugh, and Trump and his Republican Party want to keep it that way to try to keep Republican voters enthusiastic. But is this red wave of outrage really a thing? A new survey by Political and Morning Consult says no. First, the poll found that while 40% of voters think the Senate did the right thing, confirming Kavanaugh, 46% think the Senate did the wrong thing. And the survey found that 77% of Democrats are very motivated to turn out. It's just 68% among the Republicans. Among independent voters, 47% say the Senate made the wrong decision by confirming Kavanaugh. Only 34% say it was the right thing. Independents are key. Donald Trump is mistakenly convinced that the Kavanaugh fight is his key to keeping his cooperative Congress. Mitch McConnell was wrong when he said the Democrats had handed his party a gift with their opposition to Kavanaugh. The numbers show they're both wrong. And Republican candidates across the country are also mistaken in their belief the Kavanaugh fight was rocket fuel that would help them hang on to the Senate that confirmed Brett Kavanaugh. A CNN poll gives generic Democrats a 13-point margin over Republican candidates nationally. And it shows Democratic enthusiasm tops Republican enthusiasm by 10%. If this is an anger contest, Democrats appear to be winning. So which side is Wall Street backing? A nonpartisan monitoring group says big investors are backing Democratic candidates over Republicans in this election to serve as a check and balance against Donald Trump. Oh, don't get them wrong. They love Trump's deregulation policy and the state of the economy, especially their own. But they're putting their money, more money than ever, into Democratic House campaigns from Montana to New York to Kentucky. And while Republican voters may be more enthused, Republican money men are not. The type who opened their wallets for Mitt Romney are nowhere to be found this election cycle. Republican candidates are having a hard time keeping up with their Democratic rivals in fundraising. The New York Times reports that one of Wall Street's biggest Republican donors, Seth Klarman, has now switched, giving $20 million to Democrats this year. The Times reports that another big Republican fundraiser has now raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for a New Jersey Democrat running for Congress. He cites as his reason Trump's lack of empathy. 
Democrats know that in order to win next month, they need to not only win the cities and suburbs as they're expected to do, they need to not get crushed in the rural areas. Democrats don't have to win in rural America. They can actually win the national race while losing those rural areas. But Democrats do have to hold some ground in the heartland as they learned the hard way just two short years ago with the Hillary Clinton campaign. And the heartland is where Trump is holding his anger-inducing rallies right up to Election Day, telling the nation the primetime lie that Kavanaugh had been proven innocent and publicly apologizing to Kavanaugh, quote, on behalf of our nation. Red state Democrats across the country are begging the National Democratic Party to avoid repeating their 2016 mistake of ignoring the heartland. Brett Kavanaugh now serves on the U.S. Supreme Court because he got enough yes votes from senators who represent a minority of the country's population. Like Trump, who won the presidency despite losing by three million popular votes, Kavanaugh won his Supreme Court seat when the votes of senators from sparsely populated states outnumbered the votes of senators from our most densely populated states. California and Wyoming each get two senators, even though there are 66 times as many people in California as there are in Wyoming. These days, the Senate can pass laws with the support of only 17% of the country's population. Minority rule. And now the Supreme Court is controlled by that same minority. That same minority has control of all three branches of our government. This is the fifth time we've had a president who had lost the popular vote. The fifth time. Together, those presidents put 13 justices on the high court. Brett Kavanaugh is the first, however, to be appointed by a president who had lost the popular vote, confirmed by senators representing a minority of the population, while a majority of U.S. citizens oppose Brett Kavanaugh. After an FBI investigation restricted by the White House and by one of the slimmest margins in history, Brett Kavanaugh became part of what is now the most partisan Supreme Court in our history. It would remain partisan for at least the next two generations, now as divided as the Congress and the country. While age is on the side of the conservative justices on the bench now, age is against two of the four liberals. And there's no longer a moderate swing vote, and the court's image as a nonpartisan body is permanently damaged. Thousands turned out to protest Kavanaugh's confirmation, and hundreds of them got arrested. Trump described them as a dangerous left-wing mob. This is the second most divided time in our country, says conservative commentator William Bennett, who compares it to events that preceded the Civil War. Over the past few weeks, Chief Justice John Roberts has gotten over a dozen judicial misconduct complaints against Brett Kavanaugh. They're complaints about Kavanaugh's non-judicial behavior in the confirmation process, the temper, the misleading statements, and the partisan vitriol Kavanaugh spewed on Democrats and specifically the Clintons. A judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals gave Justice Roberts a stack of these complaints over the past three weeks, and Roberts had been sitting on them. No more. Per protocol, Roberts has now turned the Kavanaugh complaints over to the 10th District Court of Appeals, which presides over Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. Democrats, with a House majority, may impeach Brett Kavanaugh and Donald Trump. Democrats are now poised to take the House. And despite reluctance by Democratic leaders, Democratic lawmakers will be pushing for perhaps more than one impeachment, even if removal of Kavanaugh or Trump is highly unlikely. Even if Democrats won the Senate, they still wouldn't have the necessary two-thirds majority to remove either man from office. Two presidents and 15 federal judges have been impeached in our history, but fewer than half of them were removed from office. Still, a Democratic-controlled House Judiciary Committee would no doubt investigate the alleged perjury by Kavanaugh and would likely recommend him for impeachment. Some Democrats are also talking about adding two more justices to the Supreme Court once a Democrat is president again. That could shift the balance of power on the court back to at least the middle, if not to the left. The Constitution places no limit on the number of Supreme Court justices. It's completely fluid. We started with six and then cut it to five. After that, it grew as the country grew, up to seven and then ten, and even ten. 
Franklin Roosevelt tried to swing 15 justices. He didn't get them. Adding a moderate and a liberal to the bench, or two liberals, would shift the court away from what now seems like an unchangeably conservative future. It's not unchangeable. It is difficult and unlikely, but it can and has been done, and it's being discussed again. Democratic Party leadership, meanwhile, would rather we stop talking about Kavanaugh just in case it does fire up Republican voters. The Gallup poll's highest numbers ever on the public's faith in politicians came just four months before Richard Nixon resigned in disgrace. Back then, the public's trust in politicians was 68% as impeachment proceedings then included Republicans alongside Democrats. The second highest number for trusting politicians was just before the start of the Kavanaugh hearings when it was 55%. Incredibly, that's up 7% from last year and up 13% from the historic low it hit in 2016. 53% of Republicans trust our politicians. For Democrats, it's 58 The survey was taken just before Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. The public's opinion may have changed since then. That mysterious announcement from Nikki Haley, a Trump-Russia investigation update, Taylor Swift, and Bob Seska after this. Hey, thank you again for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com, no matter what you buy there. Lately, I've been discovering the expanding world of Amazon Prime Music. I love it. And if you shop the new Amazon Business, which is free, you can manage your office supplies with the greatest of ease. I get a small commission from Amazon for that and every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Now, if you'd rather not use my Amazon link, please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button that's just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. It's important, and thank you. Timing is everything. It was Tuesday, precisely four weeks before the election, that Nikki Haley announced she was resigning as the United States ambassador to the United Nations. Haley announced her decision in the afterglow of an ugly political battle one day after Brett Kavanaugh had been sworn in for a second time. Why would Trump suddenly distract from what he believes is his strongest campaign play? And Haley wasn't quitting right away. She was giving a three-month notice. So why announce it this early? Trump made it a point to mention Haley had informed him of her plans to leave six months ago, making it appear to have been a long-planned decision. It's not unusual for a U.N. ambassador to step away after two years of service and to parlay that experience into something else, be it a commercial venture or a presidential campaign. But the timing, considering all of the coinciding events, is just odd. It was a surprise announcement that almost no one saw coming, especially since Nikki Haley is Trump's most popular cabinet official. Haley's departure was apparently announced without the prior knowledge of either Secretary of State Mike Pompeo or National Security Advisor John Bolton. A guessing game was immediately underway to try to get to the bottom of this question of timing, and for that matter, why Nikki Haley's leaving at all. Haley was the suspected author, by the way, of that New York Times op-ed a month ago, assuring us that Trump aides were keeping Trump in check. She denied that vigorously in an op-ed response of her own. The day before Haley's announcement, she was called out by a citizen's watchdog group for flying on private jets at taxpayers' expense. Was that a factor? Theories include Haley objecting to Trump's remarks about women, to her being fed up with being the last remaining moderate voice in Trump's foreign policy circle. But we do not know why Haley is quitting or why she announced it when she did. So stay tuned. Salon.com's Bob Seska has changed his mind about Donald Trump, at least in one way. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Ever since the 2016 election, I haven't really engaged in the not-my-president meme. Don't get me wrong, it should be obvious to anyone who knows my work that I have a gut-level hatred of Donald Trump. Indeed, it's the first time I've ever hated a president. Even if we strip out his ludicrous policies and agenda, he's still just a vile, unrepentantly cruel and ignorant loudmouth. He's Tony Clifton with different hair. He's a damaging figure whose very presence inflicts harm upon our system of government. As a student of the presidency, I thoroughly resent someone of such low class occupying that heretofore sacred office. 
But regardless, he's still the president, though I won't go so far as to claim ownership. He's not mine. He's our president, whether we think he won legitimately or not. All that said, I'm reconsidering my position, especially this week when Trump made the calculated decision to reject and ridicule every American who isn't a member of his slack-jawed peanut gallery of red hats. During a rally last weekend, Trump literally described Democrats and those who support Democrats as evil and as an angry mob. Quote, the radical Democrats have turned into an angry mob, Trump told supporters at a Kansas rally last weekend. You don't hand matches to an arsonist and you don't give power to an angry left wing mob. And that's what they've become. The Democrats have become too extreme and too dangerous to govern. Republicans believe in the rule of law not the rule of the mob. It turns out I didn't have to reject his presidency. The president rejected me instead. Let's be clear. I don't care if Trump approves of me or my party affiliation. I'm not outraged, nor do I feel rejected by any of his horseshit. However, Trump doesn't want to be my president. Fine. It turns out I don't want to be one of his subjects. I'm merely interested in making sure he leaves office as quickly as possible and that the damage is minimal. The other thing he said that really pissed me off, though, is when on Monday night he held another neo-fascist rally in which he unironically referred to Democrats as the Dems. Again, it's not necessarily that I was offended by being called an idiot. It's that we were called idiots by a president who's the dumbest stooge to have ever drooled upon the resolute desk. It's not unlike when a Trump voter accosts a political celebrity online, not realizing that their beloved president is absolutely a celebrity whose TV series, The Celebrity Apprentice, literally had the word celebrity in the title. In this case, I'm offended by this textbook illustration of Dunning-Kruger staring into a camera and telling me I'm stupid when a simple glance at the record shows he's barely smarter than a bag of pudding. We're all dims, right? Even though Trump couldn't name the three branches of government, he couldn't describe the nuclear triad. He thought Frederick Douglass was still alive. He referred to the previous hurricane as, quote, tremendously big and tremendously wet, then followed it up by saying the hurricane is among the wettest from the standpoint of water. During the campaign, he said it's easy to be awarded the Purple Heart. He once said we need the climate crisis because it was snowing in New York City. He needed several tries to accurately spell counsel, and he still can't do it. Yet 40% of American voters think he's a genius. Even though I'm not taking it personally, his complete rejection of half the nation's voting population, it's still a significant problem. His remarks aside, we've seen how Trump behaves when, say, a hurricane hits a blue area like Puerto Rico, contrasted with how Trump snaps into action when one hits a red state, such as Florence or, this week, Hurricane Michael. My late friend Chez once predicted Trump wouldn't bother with California if a natural disaster struck there. He was damn right, of course. A year ago this week, the Santa Rosa firestorm became the most destructive wildfire in California history, and I was smack in the middle of it. The initial wave of fires decimated Sonoma and Napa counties at upwards of 200 feet per second in some places, destroying 36,000 acres of land and reducing 5,600 homes and businesses to dust. The aftermath looked like a nuclear bomb had detonated in some neighborhoods, and Trump barely mentioned it. Not that we needed his meddling, it's just that it underscored how Trump only wants to be the president of the states that elected him, while turning the states that voted against him into punchlines for the amusement of his bug-eyed loyalists. Again, Puerto Ricans especially know what I'm talking about. Barack Obama, meanwhile, repeatedly told audiences that he's not the president of the blue states or the red states. He's the president of the United States. He didn't always reach out to red states, though, with his policies, though his signature achievement, the Affordable Care Act, was drawn from Republican plans, specifically Romney Care in Massachusetts, and a conservative Heritage Foundation proposal from the 1990s. Likewise, Obama didn't pass the recession-killing stimulus plan strictly for the blue states. He passed relief funds, infrastructure spending, and tax breaks for middle-class Americans of all affiliations. Trump, on the other hand, gave you an extra $1.50 per paycheck, for now, while passing gigantic tax cuts for the super-rich. To say this has to stop is an understatement. The presidency, while inherently partisan, has always been inclusive. Trump's presidential hero, Andrew Jackson, famously plunked a big wheel of cheese in the lobby of the White House for all visitors to enjoy, regardless of whether they voted for John Quincy Adams. 
Trump, however, wouldn't cross the street to piss on your shoe. He wants to rule over us, yet he doesn't want to acknowledge us as his constituents. You might not think he's your president, and you know what? He doesn't care. In his warm and festive brain, he's never been your president, and he never will be. In the end, he's inadvertently pardoning us all from being held responsible by history for the disaster he's creating, and I'm totally okay with that. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Get more of Bob at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with him again on Tuesday. Now, about the Trump-Russia probe. As expected, the Mueller team has been more quiet than usual in these 60 days leading up to the election, but stuff's been happening. Yesterday, the Mueller probe sent its third individual to prison, a bit player who created fake identities for Russians working to spread disinformation and division in the 2016 presidential campaign. A clearly contrite 28-year-old named Richard Pinedo was exceptionally cooperative with prosecutors. Next up, the sentencing of Mike Flynn next month. Rick Gates, Trump's deputy campaign manager in 2016, has pleaded guilty to federal felonies and is now cooperating with the Mueller team. And this week, we learned that Russia wasn't the only country with which the Trump campaign had contact. Gates was, in 2016, asking an Israeli company to create fake online identities for social media manipulation to help defeat Trump's primary challengers and then Hillary Clinton. The company is Psy Group, as in psychology, but the plan also involved intelligence gathering and had been recommended to Rick Gates by an official of the Israeli government. Gates wanted enough fake accounts to target and influence 5,000 Republican convention delegates with attacks on Ted Cruz, who was in the lead at the time. The company drew up a proposal to implement a plan that involved help from a foreign country to influence a U.S. election. The plan was never implemented, but it had been pursued. Code names had already been assigned to Trump, Cruz, and Clinton. To a prosecutor, this is evidence of intent, as well as being an apparent crime of its own. We also learned this week that special counsel Robert Mueller is looking into an effort to get Hillary Clinton's emails. The prize was $100,000, offered by Republican political operative Peter Smith, who was in close contact with soon-to-be national security advisor Mike Flynn. Peter Smith is the guy who took his own life shortly after revealing some of his shenanigans to a reporter, which he did after learning his health was failing fast. Smith apparently got the money from at least four wealthy donors as he tried to get hold of the emails he'd learned had been stolen by hackers from Clinton's server just weeks before the election. After meeting with Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein aboard Air Force One this week, Trump said he will not fire Rosenstein. But the man Trump wanted to replace Rosenstein has been talking with Trump recently about replacing Jeff Sessions instead. Matthew Whitaker has spent hours and hours on Fox News these past two years railing against the Mueller investigation. As our attorney general, not recused from the Russia investigation, Whitaker could then stifle the investigation and give Trump the kind of attorney general protection he's been pining for. Stay tuned. And then there's this. Robert Mueller now has a place in Trump Tower. Actually, it's the U.S. government that owns it, meaning you and I. It's one of the homes Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort had to surrender as he pleads guilty to his federal felony charges to try to minimize the amount of time he will spend in prison. By the way, we also now own Manafort's place in the Hamptons. Unemployment fell in September to its lowest point in nearly 50 years. It fell to 3.7% and might have fallen lower were it not for the damper Hurricane Florence put on hiring in the Carolinas in the hospitality and retail industries. Rebuilding has caused a spike in construction hiring. Wages, however, didn't grow as much as they had the month before, still languishing at 2.8% growth, just enough to keep up with the higher prices. Economists still credit Obama for the recovery, but they say Trump's tax breaks for companies have kept up the momentum. Likewise, yesterday's stock market loss of 800 points 
was due in part to higher interest rates, but also due to Trump's trade war with China. In Chicago this week, a white police officer who shot to death a black teenager was convicted of second-degree murder and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Former officer Jason Van Dyke was captured on dash cam video pumping 16 bullets into 17-year-old Laquan McDonald. The jury found it a case of excessive force. It's a verdict and a sentence the black community isn't used to hearing. Thank you, Jesus, said a woman outside the courtroom. Justice for Laquan, said another. In a statement that will not bring the police and the black community together in Chicago, the head of the city's police union said the jury was duped and that the officer had been stabbed in the back by political operatives in a sham trial with a shameful verdict. The city's mayor, Rahm Emanuel, was under pressure to resign for withholding the public release of that dash cam video until after his re-election. Emanuel has since decided not to run for a third term as planned. In Georgia, a former police officer will also serve a 15-year sentence for lying about being shot by a black man while she was on duty. We now know that 41-year-old Sherry Hall made up her story about the man in the green shirt and the black jogging pants. That story set off a manhunt and the questioning of at least one man who had been detained by police. There was no man. It took investigators 10 days to piece together the truth and charge her with nearly a dozen counts of making false statements, violating her oath of office, and evidence tampering. Authorities now believe she had shot herself and invented a story about having PTSD from her experience in order to get disability payments. And in Florence, South Carolina, seven law enforcement officers were shot and one of them died. The shooter was a man who'd held police at bay for two hours after they tried to serve a warrant for a possible child sex crime. We later learned the man had been holding seven children hostage during that armed standoff. War on immigrants update. The Trump government has proposed cutting back on the waivers that are issued to help poor immigrants on a path to legal, permanent residency and U.S. citizenship. Immigrants are required to pay a fee unless they fall below the poverty line, in which case the fee is waived. The Trump administration wants to issue fewer waivers, and that proposal is up for public comment until November 27th. But not every anti-immigration plan from this administration becomes reality. One plan was to end Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, for immigrants from El Salvador, Haiti, Sudan, and Nicaragua. But a federal judge has now blocked Trump's plan pending further hearing. He says the Trump plan appears to violate the Equal Opportunity Clause of the Constitution by showing, quote, animus against non-white, non-European immigrants. The judge's ruling allowed nearly a quarter million people who have this immigrant protection to breathe a sigh of relief for now. Trump supporters loved Taylor Swift, and many assumed she was a Trump-publican too. To a more objective eye, she was neutral, and she'd kept it that way on purpose as a career decision. She isn't a Trumper, and she isn't neutral, and she made that clear this week when Taylor Swift endorsed two of her state's Democratic candidates, and she urged everyone across the country to register and vote and posted a link to make that possible. And man, did they register. The website Vote.org got 65,000 people registered in the 24 hours that followed Swift's bombshell Instagram post. In Swift's home state of Tennessee, more than 2,000 new voters had registered in the 36 hours after Swift's post. And she did it just before the deadline for registration in her state and many others. Swift also railed against politicians who discriminate based on skin color. She said that's not America and it's not Tennessee. And then she went on to urge people to vote as she was setting a new record for the number of American Music Awards bestowed on a single artist, now 23 for Taylor Swift. She now has more AMAs than the previous record holder, Whitney Houston. Dying to look at ourselves. Don't say Mormon, a thousand-year-old sword, and something about a monkey in the third and final segment, up next. Even though we know how important it is to have life insurance, a third of us don't mainly because it's boring and complicated. 
How do you shop for the best deal on the best policy for you? Where do you start? Who do you trust? Do your own research? Sounds risky. It's still boring. Unless, unless you go to policygenius.com. Even if you don't know jack about insurance, policygenius.com gives you a policy that's right for you. And in about two minutes. PolicyGenius.com does the work for you by comparing quotes from all the top companies. You get peace of mind knowing that over 4 million people have used PolicyGenius, not just for life insurance, but for home, auto, disability, and more. Stop putting off having the life insurance you know you need. Take two minutes right now to make the right decision for you and your family. PolicyGenius.com, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. It's already a scary good October for the movie industry. It's a record October already for ticket sales, mostly thanks to two very different movies opening on the first weekend of the month. The one-two punch of Venom and A Star is Born packed them into theaters. Both movies overshot their opening weekend targets by 30% each. Venom made $80 million for first place, A Star is Born, $41 million. And giving theater goers a choice between superhero and super heartthrobs paid off, with theater owners filling nearly twice as many seats. With Jamie Lee Curtis's Halloween opening on the 19th, this October's numbers will go through the roof especially if the excitement holds in the week ahead for this week's top two. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. The A Star is Born soundtrack, by the way, is this week's top-selling album, and songs from that soundtrack are the top three selling singles. In Passings and Passages this week, you'll see him one last time in a cameo in Season 9 of The Walking Dead, but actor Scott Wilson has died at the age of 76. Wilson, who played the kind-hearted Herschel Green, had leukemia and died at home from complications. Wilson also had roles in movies like The Great Gatsby, In Cold Blood, and In the Heat of the Night. And Will Vinton died this week. Vinton was the animator who gave new life to stop-motion animation with his singing California Raisins and his original creation, Gumby. Claymation, he called it, partly because he used putty and clay instead of stiff puppets like other stop-action animators. Vinton has passed at age 70 from multiple myeloma, but his studio lives on in Portland, Oregon, where the animation community continues to thrive. And goodbye, Google+. Plus. Google is shutting down its social network after knowing at least since March that the private profile data of at least a half million users may have been exposed to hundreds of outside developers. It was access similar to what Cambridge Analytica had at Facebook, and Google management kept this breach under wraps, reportedly worried that Google would be the next target of an angry Congress and an angry public, just as Facebook had been. Google Plus arrived on the scene in 2011 as competition for Facebook. A new study shows that in the past six years, the world has lost more than 250 people who died taking selfies. The leading cause of death is drowning, followed by getting hit by a vehicle, including trains. Falling from heights is third. This miscellaneous category includes deaths involving wild animals, guns, and electrocution. The study's author tells the Washington Post, and I quote, selfie deaths have become a major public health problem. Six and a half million pounds is a lot of meat. And that's how much has been recalled by a company in Arizona. The recall came after five dozen people were sickened by salmonella in 16 states. Meanwhile, at Smithfield Hams, the recall is for 90,000 pounds of ham products for listeria contamination. That includes the fully cooked and deli ham purchased since April 3rd of last year, in case you still have some in your freezer. The flu season, as predicted, has started early and people are being urged to again get their vaccinations. At least two people have already died in North Carolina from the flu. Vaccinations can prevent death not only in an individual, but in the others they may infect. It's also extra hand-washing season. In Vietnam, one man's sinus trouble proved to be removable. Video uploaded Monday shows an ear, nose, and throat doctor removing what turned out to be a leech that had squirmed its way up the man's nose. 
Both doctor and patient were shocked at the size of the leech, and then the two of them had a good laugh about it. The man is fine. No word on the fate of the leech. In South Korea, authorities have seized more than 2,000 pills smuggled from China. What kind of pills? Human flesh. They're human flesh pills. They're made from dead human fetuses and are thought to boost stamina and cure cancer, diabetes, and a host of other diseases. They don't. South Korean scientists also found hepatitis B and tens of billions of viruses in a single capsule of flesh pill. For better and worse, the Oxford Dictionary is out with its annual list of new words. The least popular of the bunch is updation, a new twist on the word update. Updation took a beating on Twitter with demands that Oxford change its mind about that one. All that abbreviating of family to fam has paid off. Fam is now a word, according to the Oxford Dictionary. Famous filmmakers got their own words this year. Bergman-esque for Ingmar Bergman, Spielbergian for Steven Spielberg. In politics, nothing burger and idiocracy both rightly made the cut. Speaking of words, and with them, there were complaints in Haydenley, England this week after police went to an elementary school to give a presentation on emergency services to the kids. The kids wanted the cops to settle an argument. Do your sirens go woo-woo or nina? The officers gladly demonstrated, frightening nearby residents who suspected the worst when they heard sirens at school. Police have now apologized for the scare. By the way, the winner was Woo Woo with 60 votes, only 26 votes for Nina. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is warning its members to stop using the word Mormon, calling it offensive to God and pleasing to Satan. The church has also dropped Mormon from the name of its tabernacle choir. The church is trying to shed some bad PR, advising its members to be careful about what they read on the Internet about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and not to rely on the opinions of celebrities. Also on our religion page, the Vatican this week opened a month-long meeting of bishops about how to lure young people back to the church. The subject of sexual abuse of young Catholics is not on the agenda. An overdue book has finally been returned to the Shreve Memorial Library in Shreveport, Louisiana. It's the American classic Spoon River Anthology by Edgar Lee Masters. An 11-year-old girl had checked it out of the library in 1934. A patron of the library found it while cleaning out his late mother's house, the overdue book charge at the Shreve Memorial Library is capped at $3. That book is a first printing and is now the most overdue book in American library history. Quoting the librarian, it's never too late to return an overdue book, which is a very librarian thing to say. Part satirical vandal and all artist, he's known as Banksy, and Britain's Banksy is known for his pranks. And immediately after the gavel came down to auction Banksy's painting Girl with a Balloon for $1.4 million, a battery-operated shredder activated by remote control shredded the bottom half of the painting, the strands of it dangling from the bottom edge of the frame. Banksy later posted an Instagram video showing how he built that shredding frame, adding the message, in case it's ever put up for auction. The half-shredded girl with a balloon is probably worth even more money now. Next item. 38-year-old Christopher Hatting is a convicted bank robber now. In Anchorage, Alaska, Mr. Hatting will now serve four years for each of three bank robberies, 12 years total, and then five years on parole. Because over the past 14 months, Chris robbed the Anchorage branch of the Wells Fargo Bank. The same branch all three times. Chris Hatting's plan did have flashes of cleverness. His note to the teller was composed from cut-out magazine letters. Hatting even tried to change his appearance for his return visits by stuffing cotton balls in his cheeks and applying makeup. Still, he was destined to get caught robbing the same bank three times in a row. A Springfield, Missouri man is facing felony charges after removing his court-ordered ankle monitor and then posting the video of that on Facebook as a how-to. 
33-year-old Dustin Burns allegedly used a butter knife and a screwdriver to remove the monitor without damaging it. Damaging the thing, he explains in the video, could get you a hefty fine. He's now facing much worse than that. In New Jersey, a heavy object fell from the sky and crashed through the back wall of the Silvestri home on Western Avenue in Jersey City. Arlene Silvestri called police to report an explosion inside her two-story house. Police identified the object as a cylinder of compressed gas that had launched itself from the scrap metal yard over on County Avenue. The scrapyard owner says he heard the noise, but he says it didn't come from his place. The investigation continues. And not to be alarmist, but the sky is falling from coast to coast. In Southern California, the thing that fell from the sky cracked a family's driveway. The crack is 30 feet long. It was another chunk of airplane ice. Two other area families have had similar experiences recently, and it makes a person a bit nervous. The homes are all along the descent path for planes arriving at LAX. There was a meteor shower in the 1930s that rained debris onto a farm in Michigan. When that owner sold the farm to its current owner, he pointed out the meteorite that the new owner has used for a doorstop ever since for the past 30 years. And it wasn't until this year that the owner of this doorstop from space discovered those things are worth money. And his is the sixth biggest one ever found in Michigan. So the thing that had served as a doorstop for three decades is now netting its owner $100,000. The doorstop. The Smithsonian's considering making a bid, as is a private collector. The Smithsonian is likely to cut off pieces of the rock for research. Scientists, by the way, are also studying a sword believed to be more than 1,000 years old. It was found in a lake in Sweden by a girl who was swimming there. 1,500 years, perhaps. The sword's historical value may make it priceless. And while some money falls from the sky, some goes just as quickly the other way. In Utah, a couple had been saving money for football tickets in an envelope. They were saving to buy two season tickets to the University of Utah football games. But last weekend, the envelope went missing. Later, they discovered their two-year-old son, Leo, had run the money and the envelope through mom and dad's new paper shredder. He'd been taught how to use the shredder, helping his mom open the junk mail. The U.S. Treasury will likely replace the couple's football money, but probably not in time for the season. As instructed, the couple have put the shreds into a Ziploc bag and shipped them off to the Treasury. The parents say what their son did is as funny as it was horrifying. The kid is no Banksy. Jail is where you'll go if you go trick-or-treating in Chesapeake, Virginia, and you're over the age of 12. The city of Chesapeake, a suburb of Norfolk, has strict laws and strict penalties regarding Halloween. The law means parents are not even allowed to dress up in costume as they escort their costumed children door-to-door. The punishment can be as harsh as six months in the slammer and a $100 fine. And if you're under 12, you could risk 30 days in jail if you're still knocking on doors after 8 p.m. Strict. One adult got tired of going door to door. In Pensacola, New Jersey, a mail carrier decided to quit on the job and left thousands of pieces of undelivered mail on the side of a road. We still don't know why. The Postal Service accepted the resignation and promised it would deliver that mail. Video of the abandoned boxes were shared thousands of times on Facebook with the caption, If you're looking for your mail, it may be on River Road by the 36th Street Station. The top viral video of the week, of course, was the one of Trump boarding Air Force One with what appears to be toilet paper trailing from his left heel. The Krispy Kreme donut shop in Blanchardstown, Ireland, has been forced to close its drive through at night after complaints from the neighbors about the honking of horns by people waiting for their donuts. The neighbors say the line of cars for overnight donuts wrapped around an entire shopping plaza. The lights, the noise, the fumes, and the traffic jam, quoting one resident, all night, every night. Krispy Kreme is now working with traffic managers, so it can once again feed the cravings of all-nighters.
in Gilbert, Minnesota, people were worried about the birds. They were behaving strangely, flying into things. Clearly, the birds are drunk. It happens. This year in Gilbert, an early frost caused the berries to ferment. The birds ate them anyway and got hammered. Police have assured the residents the birds will sober up soon. Quoting one ornithologist, uh, they just get sloppy and clumsy, adding, they've actually fallen out of trees on occasion. Lake Michigan is too far north for alligators. That's what a suburban Chicago man thought until he spotted one swimming near his kayak. Local police were skeptical, what with the geographical odds and all, but they knew one when they saw it. Even the man thought it might have been a toy until he captured the four-foot gator himself because its jaw had already been taped shut. Police are now looking for the former owner. The gator now lives at a local wildlife discovery center where experts say it would have died in Lake Michigan as colder weather set in. But we can top that. Chicago has water for alligators, Lake Michigan. But Kansas? A four-foot gator was found crossing a road in a small town west of Kansas City, a town nowhere near any body of water. A deputy drew his gun, but the escaped pet has since been safely captured and returned to its owner. The call kept coming from inside the hospital. Always on call, a vet for a SEAL hospital in Hawaii kept getting calls from the hospital, a string of nine calls in rapid succession with no one on the line. She rushed back to the SEAL hospital in case there was an emergency. She returned to find a tiny emerald green gecko resting on the touchscreen of a landline phone. As the vet tweeted, making calls with his tiny gecko feet. And no, the vet would not like to save 15% on her car insurance. A woman was removed from a Frontier Airlines flight from Orlando to Cleveland after claiming the squirrel in her possession was an emotional support animal. An emotional support squirrel, to be exact. Frontier says the woman told them she'd bring an emotional support animal, but not that it was a large rodent. The flight was delayed two hours, but the passengers had... Plenty to talk about while they waited. And finally, not surprising perhaps that someone in India would keep a monkey as a pet, amusing that they would bring it with them to ride a city bus somewhere. The story made it to here because the bus driver has been suspended for letting the monkey drive the bus. Never let the monkey drive the bus. What could possibly go wrong? Viral video shows the monkey sitting on the driver's lap and then on the steering wheel itself, helping to steer. What better way to part ways this week than a monkey driving a bus? I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.